Hello from the Financial Times in London. I'm Polita Clark and this is News in Focus, where we offer our insights into the stories that matter. As public concern over waste and environmental damage grows, startups and consumer giants are trying to find a solution to the deluge of plastic packaging that ends up in landfill or polluting our oceans. But what are the alternatives? Who's developing them? And can we break our addiction to plastic? Here with me to discuss this is Leila Aboud, the FT's Consumer Industries Correspondent, and Leslie Hook, our Environment Correspondent. Leslie, let's start with you. Plastic's been a part of our daily lives for decades. When did we start worrying about it and why? Well, Polita, I think there was a real change that happened about two years ago in late 2017 when Blue Planet 2, the series produced by David Attenborough, aired in the UK. And these images of the way ocean plastics are impacting birds, impacting marine life, were so visceral that it was a bit of a tipping point in that this was an issue that people had known about, but maybe it was at the back of their minds. And suddenly, everyone wanted to do something about it. How much plastic is there in the seas, do we think? It's very hard to count because it depends how small down you want to go. Microplastics, which are one of the most dangerous forms of plastics because they can get into marine life, even into humans, those tiny particles are very hard to measure. A paper that came out in 2015 said that humans are dumping between 5 and 13 million tons of plastic into the ocean each year. There have been quite a few different efforts to count what's in the ocean now by looking at beaches, by examining the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. It's a bit like counting stars in the sky. It's a bit hard to know. Right. And that Great Pacific Garbage Patch, it's not quite like a big static puddle of plastic in the middle of the ocean, is it? It's a little bit more complicated than that. I've never seen it myself, but I believe it does move around and it's formed by the ocean currents, which bring a lot of the plastic that's floating in the ocean to that one area. Layla, you wrote a feature for the FT magazine recently in which you talked to companies, large and small, that were looking at alternatives to plastic packaging. But first, tell us why plastics are so difficult to replace in the industry. So in consumer goods specifically, they love plastic. And if they're honest, they're never going to get rid of it completely. They're not always honest about it, though. But it has three things that are really good for food packaging in particular. So it is light, it is durable, it is cheap, and it prevents humidity and light from entering. So if you're talking about preserving toothpaste or food or even shampoo, it can preserve the shelf life of a product for a really long time. And then also just on the sort of weight. So if you're looking at the cost to make the packaging and then to transport and keep the goods safe, it's often, put it this way, the best solution. So they look at all these parameters and then they often tend to pick plastic. Right. And I think you gave an example, actually, of, um, might have been a courgette. It's that, a cucumber. All right. Yes. <laughs> I suppose. <laughs> but encoding it in plastic means that you can extend its life from days to weeks, right? Yeah, I think it's probably a week to 10 days, if they're being honest, and then about three days if you take the plastic off. So it's markedly better to use plastic rather than glass and metal in many cases. In many cases. I mean, I feel like this entire article needs to have an asterisk next to it. It depends on the case. It sort of depends what product you're using, using it for, what the alternatives would be, where is it made, how long will it be transported, how long do you need it to be good. I kind of feel like I went into this story with a very simplistic headline, which is like, how can we replace plastic? And you start looking into it and you're like, man, we really shouldn't replace plastic for a bunch of things. Plastic actually works for many applications that we need it for in industry and food. 
in particular in consumer goods. I think if we're honest, we probably need to use less of it. But just simply sort of saying, okay, let's go back to glass or metal when they're heavier and sometimes more energy intensive to make would actually be worse for greenhouse gas emissions. So I think to go back to what Leslie was saying about the visibility of the ocean plastic problem and blue panic tugged on people's heartstrings. But fundamentally, if you are replacing plastic packaging with glass and having higher greenhouse gas emissions, I'm not really sure you've done that much for the environment. Now, I think most people would think that the answer lies in recycling. But did you find that that was the case or not? I wish it were. I don't think it is, in part because the recycling system, and you could say globally, but in some countries it functions decently well, but overall it doesn't really work that well, and it hasn't for decades. Why is that? There are many reasons, including some very good work that Leslie has done about how the recycling system globally was broken once China stopped taking imports last year, I think it was. But also, even before that, plastic is sort of difficult to recycle. I didn't realize this even before I started doing the story. When they say recycled, it's not actually reused for the same thing. You can't actually take food packaging, for example, and make it again into food packaging. Often it'll go into something which is less valuable, so downcycled into carpet or industrial materials or something. So it's just chemically and physically, we're not very good at recycling. It's actually quite difficult to do to get usable materials on the other end. And then if you think about it as like a giant market, meaning there are waste processors, recyclers, the companies that make the stuff, the governments that kind of have to collect the trash, that whole market is completely dysfunctional. So a lot of the stuff at any given point when someone has to make the choice, does this have to go on this track to get recycled or this track to go into landfill or incineration? If it's not perfect at that moment, it's going to get dumped onto the landfill and incineration track. And do we know roughly what proportion of plastic is recycled? So actually, again, it's very hard to know, but some of the work that's been done on it puts it anywhere between 5 to 9% globally. Right. So it's very low. Very low. And Leslie... And Leila just mentioned the excellent work that you've done on China's decision to suddenly stop being the world's recycler. Could you just explain what was it doing for years and years and what led it to make that decision? Yeah, that really was a tipping point in the recycling industry. And I think it exposed a lot of the flaws in a system that was already broken, as Leila has just outlined. China used to be the biggest importer of plastic scrap, as it's called in the industry, which is all the plastic that you toss into your recycling bin. And the reason China was taking all of this plastic was that it could be converted into low-grade plastic materials being produced in Chinese factories. So this Chinese imports of recyclables took off in the late 90s, early 2000s, it really helped that there were also empty containers coming back from developed countries that were buying Chinese goods. Those containers had to get shipped back to China so they could fill up again. Why not fill them with cardboard or plastic and then get the dirty processing done in China? And then a pair of black flip-flops or a plastic bucket that you use for a mop comes back again. But the policymakers in Beijing decided this system was not really working in their favor Recycling plastic, as Leila has alluded to, produces a lot of wastewater. It requires a lot of energy. A lot of these facilities were illegal and highly polluting. And so they instituted, to the great shock of the global recycling industry, an almost overnight policy that from January 1st, 2018, China would not be taking any more mixed plastics. And so that sent that plastic looking for a home. A lot of it has ended up in landfill or in incineration Some places are trying to do more recycling closer to home, and that is bringing the issue to the fore of why recycling is so difficult, because it's hard to do closer to home, too. Right. 
Well, if recycling is never going to be an answer anytime soon, although perhaps with a lot of technological development it could be, but if we say at the moment that recycling is not necessarily the answer, is, say, biodegradability something that companies should be looking at more? I feel very mixed about this whole thing. So biodegradability is the idea that you could make plastics out of non-fossil fuel, so you make them out of plant-based stuff or seaweed or whatever which then makes it have a little bit less of a greenhouse gas footprint. Trouble is, a lot of that stuff, you have to be careful then where you put it. You can't just throw it in the environment on the street and hope that it's going to dissolve in a couple days. Some of it needs to be industrially composted, which is like at 50 to 60 degrees Celsius over the course of 6 to 12 weeks. It can create more problems than it's worth if it ends up in the wrong place. And already, I think one of the lessons of the recycling system, the lack of a system, is that it's pretty hard for people to know what to do with different kinds of waste. So if we add a third thing to the mix of a new type of plastic, which has to be disposed of in yet another way, I fear just that you're adding another layer of complexity on a system, which we've proven we're not very good at this anyway. So was there anything that really caught your eye and made you think, okay, this could be an answer? There's a lot of it, actually. I mean, I think that it's easy to be cynical about what the big companies are doing because they do emphasize a lot of making things recyclable or recycling themselves. So if I look at what Nestle and Unilever and P&G are doing, one of the first things they do is, okay, we're going to take all our packaging and make it recyclable. Okay, that's actually not very hard to do, but it's not bad. The way one product designer explained it to me is maybe 10 years ago, the packaging guy would be sitting around the table with the marketing guy, the quality guy, the product manager, and the packaging guy is like fourth on the list of people they listen to at that meeting. And now the packaging guy might be like second on the list or third on the list. And that's a really big change, right? So if the packaging guy has a little bit, and he's the person in the industry or or the woman who would know about issues of disposability and have to think about where is this going to end up. If that person at the table has a little bit more voice, that can only be good, right? And then in terms of actual solutions, I think some of the most interesting ones are just using less packaging. So, or coming up with these models that you could reuse packaging. Those are all really interesting Not all bioplastics are bad. Some of them are sort of interesting for certain uses. So I did not come away from it super depressed. I feel like there's a lot of stuff going on. It's just, it's probably going to take decades of work. And some smaller companies have basically started up and are using reusable containers made of metal or glass. How fast are they growing? And is there really much of a mass market for this? I think we don't know the answer. I I hope that there is a mass market for this, and I may be wrong. One of the ones that I, the startups I highlighted in the story is this company called Loop, which has been working with big consumer brands and retailers. They started in France and in the U.S. and now they're going to be quite broad in the next two years or so. They'll be in a lot of markets. And it's all about reusing the container. So for the consumer, they just have to do an online shop. It comes in these you know, metal and new reusable containers. They use the stuff. They stick it back in the tote. It goes back. The concept of it is it let's, make, let's allow the consumer to be as lazy as he's always going to be and not expect him to do anything different. And I feel like that's this kind of thing where you'll get real change is if it's pretty easy and it's pretty cheap. The cheap part right now, we're not there because all these alternatives tend to be more expensive and oftentimes are less convenient. All right. And Leslie... We've talked a lot about what companies are doing, but is there a role for government to do a lot more? There is. And the UK, for example, is about to introduce a bottle deposit return scheme, which is pretty basic, but it's a place to start. The EU also has a circular economy policy that it's passed, which is basically designed around the idea of encouraging all items throughout the economy to be reused in the industrial sector to eliminate waste wherever possible. One of the key levers that I see is where governments can have an impact is creating demand for the products that come out the other end of the recycling line. One of the challenges at the moment is if you take plastic, recycle it, you get a product that is less pure, 
less white or pink or green and less easy to use. So from the perspective of a packaging company or a consumer goods company, it's always going to be cheaper at the moment to use virgin plastic rather than the recycled option. And so that's one area where policy could really make a difference to help create a market for the recycled pellets that are at the end of the recycling line. Right. And Leila, just finally, what about cultural factors? I mean, we've all grown up with plastic. We've been used to it for decades and decades. How easy is it going to be to shift our attachment to this material? I don't know. I mean, are we really attached to plastic or are we just sort of used to the way we've always done things? I don't really know that people have like an effective link to plastic. And from all the sort of reporting I did, it seems like young people really feel quite differently about this than people in their 40s or 50s. The CEO of Unilever basically said to me, this was the line he used, boomers don't really care about this stuff or they say they do, but they don't do anything. Millennials do care. Only one portion of them will actually change what they do. And the Gen Zs, anyone in their 20s, he said that the environmental and sustainability stuff is like all they care about. And granted, their purchasing power and influence in the market right now is maybe still low. But if that behavior sort of holds true, then they could incite real change. I do think, though, that we can't always just expect that consumers are the ones that have to... You make a decision every time you buy something to vote for a certain system. I think that that is true. But I do... Maybe I'm a little harsher than Leslie on this. I think we need much higher taxes and regulation on ways to sort of put your finger on the scale and help the recycling. If you want recycling to work, then let's tax some stuff so it actually becomes more economically viable. And the companies, even though they say that they're doing a lot of this stuff internally, you're not going to hear them out there lobbying for a lot of extra tax on their on their waste. Right, they'd much the rather stuff, stick to recycling. Exactly, but that's the stuff that would really change the equation in terms of the economics of how this all works. Do you agree with that, Leslie? I do. Yeah, I do. I think that, you know, even, for example, higher carbon taxes, if you take that back through the value chain, plastic comes from petrochemicals, it comes from fossil fuels. So uh, if there are a lot of levers, even indirect levers, where pricing in the negative externalities of these products could make a big difference. So, yeah, I would say I, I agree. Great. Well, thank you very much, Leslie. Thank you, Layla. And thank you all for listening. Don't forget, if you missed our previous episodes on Harvey Weinstein's latest accuser or LVMH's bid for Tiffany's or what the general election in Britain means for Brexit, you can subscribe to News in Focus on all the usual podcast platforms. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc., 